Well, I guess I've been instructed to give our little annual announcement before we get started. And we only do this because we, we get comments on social media. If you've noticed, if you're watching the live feed or the recording, you'll see the decorations in the background. Just understand these are not our decorations, as this is not our building. As a church, corporately and officially, we do not acknowledge any holy days other than what Christ has established in the new covenant for the church, and that is the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Every Sabbath, every Sunday is a holiday. Holy day. Here we go. And as Spurgeon said, we do not acknowledge it because we do not acknowledge the Pope and his Mass. That's where the word comes from, Christ's Mass. We do not have the authority to establish any holy days other than what Scripture has established. But the popes apparently felt they did have the authority to do it, but we don't recognize it. So, and again, this is separate from what you may do privately. If you want to honor the birth of Christ in a way that you see this godly and fitting. But again, as a church officially, we do not do that. So, and you can read also, there's an appendix in the Directory of Public Worship for the Westminster Divine State, that there are no holy days that we recognize other than the Lord's Sabbath. So, just so you know, FYI, but this sermon's not about Christmas, so moving on. <laughs> Today, <clears throat> we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And specifically, lately we've been diving into the details of John chapter 17. Now, Enero and I, we've approached this chapter a little bit differently than we've done previous chapters. We dedicated two weeks to diving into some introductory material. And then in the last session, last Lord's Day, I provided more of a broad overview discussing the primary intent of this prayer. And in doing so, I engaged with an article that critiqued the Calvinist interpretation of this text, which resulted in me giving a more thematic approach. Well, today I'm going to be following a similar pattern. We're going to be focusing, we're going to hone in on a specific topic rather than offering a verse-by-verse -verse analysis. And Inero can decide when he comes back next week if he wants to continue that or if he wants to go verse-by-verse. -verse, that's up to him. But let's read our text for the day. Again, this is John 17, and we'll start reading in verse 6. Our Lord prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. <clears throat> Fathers, we gather in your presence today. We seek your guidance and your understanding. Now, as we reflect on this text. Father, may your Holy Spirit illuminate the words spoken and heard. Resonate within our hearts and foster transformation. Lord, grant us attentive minds, open hearts, and a spirit of unity. And may you strengthen our faith and empower us to live in alignment with your divine will. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, again, before we dive into our topic today, let's do a quick review of what we saw last week. In last week's sermon, there were primarily two parts. In the first part, we interacted with an article written by an anti-Calvinist. And in doing so, we arrived at an understanding of what this prayer is primarily about. As I mentioned last week, when you read commentaries from men like John Calvin, you'll see that there is a significant focus on the doctrine of election unto salvation here from this prayer. And there are those who believe that such an emphasis is misguided. It's an error. They believe we are not understanding this prayer properly. And Dr. Leighton Flowers is one such very vocal active critic that you can find on YouTube. Leighton counters the Calvinist position in two steps. One, he says, first, we got to point out that in this prayer, Jesus is actually praying for two groups of people. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for the, the apostles and them alone. And then in verses 20 and following, Jesus then prays for those who will believe in him through the word and ministry of the apostles. So that's his first point. Then once he's made that point, he then points out that the language of election that is expressed in the words, you gave them to me, the father gave them to the son. These words are used of the apostles in verses 6 through 19, but they're not said of those in verses 20 and following. And thus, he argues, election being spoken of here is not necessarily an election unto salvation, but rather an election into an office, like the apostleship. To make this election a, an election unto salvation and in turn apply it to all believers, he argues, is not only to misunderstand the nature of election being spoken of here, but it undermines the unique authority of the apostles that were appointed as inspired messengers of God's truth. Well, was he correct? And our answer last week is no. First, while he is correct that Jesus does pray for two different groups in his prayer, as we noted even from Calvin's commentary himself, this point is not ignored. Calvin agrees that Jesus prays for the apostles alone in verses 6 through 19. And then in verse 20, Jesus widens the prayer to now pray for all of those who would believe in him through the ministry and word of the apostles, even unto the end of the world. 
So with that point out of the way, that's sort of a mute point, it then all boils down to whether or not the words given to the Son by the Father are said exclusively of the apostles and of no one else in this prayer. And as we noted, when Leighton actually begins his analysis of this prayer, he starts his analysis with verse 6. And why is that a problem? It's a problem because in verses 1 through 5, we hear from Jesus what the overarching prayer point of this prayer is. And the very thing that Leighton claims is not said of all believers, nor said of election being unto salvation, is the very thing Jesus says in the introduction to this prayer. Recall that Jesus began this prayer with these words. When he lifted his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that you know that they know you, the only true God and in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice he says the hour has come. Remember that Jesus is praying these words just moments away from being arrested and then going through this mock trial and then eventually crucified and killed. His atoning work on the cross is literally right around the corner. And this prayer most certainly concerns salvation. And he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. And for what primary purpose? To give eternal life. And to give it to whom? To all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So again, the very thing that Leighton argues is never said in this prayer is exactly what Jesus says in this prayer in verse 2, which he conveniently skipped over by starting with verse 6. The Son will give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to the Son. That is the reality of this prayer. That's the overall point. That's what this prayer is primarily about. And so Calvin was correct when he says here, that is in verse six, Christ begins to pray to the Father for his disciples, which he later qualifies as the apostles. And with the same warmth of love with which he was immediately to suffer death for them, he now pleads for their salvation. And then on verse 20 and following, Calvin writes, he began with his apostles that their salvation, which we know to be certain, might make us more certain of our own salvation. And therefore, whenever Satan attacks us, let us learn to meet him with this shield that it is to no purpose that the Son of God united us with the apostles, so that the salvation of all was bound up, as it were, in the same bundle. So that was the first part of our sermon last week. And then after having established the point that salvation is primarily in view here in this prayer, we then went on to extract from this prayer things that we could say about the doctrine of election. And again, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to preach that sermon again, but let me just quickly summarize what we saw. 
First, we saw that election is of God's sovereign choice. That is, is, it is entirely God's initiative, not ours. He chose us before we chose him. And he did, did, did so based on his own purpose and his own grace and mercy. You see this where Jesus prays for those, quote, whom you have given me. There's a people whom the Father chose. They are his. And he gave them to the Son to redeem. Secondly, we saw that election is particular. It's not universal. While God's goodness extends to all people, that is, God sends rain upon all people, God sends the sun upon all people, his grace is reserved for the elect and them alone. Jesus specifically prays for the elect in John 17 and not for the world, indicating this distinction. We see this in verse 9 where he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Isn't it interesting that in a prayer in which Jesus is praying for the salvation of people, he specifically says, I'm not praying for everybody. I'm praying for those, Father, whom you gave to me. Election is particular. It's not general. It's not broad-based. <clears throat> and then thirdly, we saw the purpose of election. Election leads to salvation. Election in and of itself is not the sum total of our salvation. It was required that Jesus do a work. It is required that he gave them the word. Ongoing sanctification is a requirement, among many things. All of these are necessary for the elect to attain eternal life in the end. And then lastly, we saw that election is inseparable from Christ. Election is always in Christ. There is no salvation outside of union with Christ and embracing him as he is revealed in the word. The most loving thing you could ever tell a monotheistic Jew or Muslim friend that you may have is they need to repent of their idolatry and embrace Christ because there is no salvation outside of that. And then we concluded last week by noting that when we consider these great truths about election, this should breed in us humility, gratitude, and love. Election reminds us that our salvation is not our achievement, but it's a gift from God. And that should replace our pride with a sense of awe and dependence upon his mercy. And considering that God chose us even while we were yet unworthy and sinners, that should fuel an overwhelming gratitude and love towards him. He didn't choose you because of anything in yourself. Well, <clears throat> that concludes our review of last week. Now what I'd like to do is I want to continue this thematic theme from this prayer by expounding upon one of the points we made last week. And I want to move from talking about election unto salvation to now talking about salvation. Regarding the purpose of election, we noted, again, as we just stated, that election in and of itself is not the sum total of salvation. 
Rather, we are elected unto salvation. Election is just one of the steps. And it is absolutely crucial and important that you understand this for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that if you don't understand this point, you are not going to understand why Jesus is praying what he is in John 17. If you recall last week, and I said a sort of said this in passing, it would not make it wouldn't even make sense for Jesus to pray this prayer if election were synonymous with salvation. Because if we have already been elected since the foundation of the world, and if election in and of itself is the sum total of our salvation, then why would Jesus pray for our salvation? The act of praying for something we already possess through election seems pointless. Now, you may add to that, well, Jason, let's take it a step further. You have said that in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is pleading for the apostles' salvation, minus, of course, Judas. Well, weren't these men already saved at this point? Weren't these men already uh, regenerated? Wouldn't your point about election also apply here about salvation? That is, if all of them, minus Judas, were saved men, then why is Jesus pleading for their salvation? That doesn't seem to make any sense either. Are they not already saved at this point? Well, first, let's consider whether or not we are actually dealing with believers here in this text. There are a number of indicators from this text that we are, in fact, dealing with believers. Again, minus Judas. One indicator is in verse 6. There Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. As we noted last week, Jesus had certainly preached to a wide swath of people throughout the Gospel of John, including many who would resist him and even tried to kill him. So why is it then that Jesus says here in verse 6 that he disclosed the name of his Father to only a limited number of individuals? Wasn't it much bigger than that? Well, he says this because you need to understand the nature of what he means here when he says that he has manifested your name. Jesus here is not merely talking about outward preaching like I'm doing now. But he's also referring to the inward illumination of the Spirit. And it is only the elect who truly benefit from this inward teaching of the Spirit. Hence, we conclude that not everyone exposed to the preaching of the gospel is genuinely and efficaciously instructed, but only those whose minds are illuminated by the Spirit are so. And notice that Christ attributes this distinction to God's election, to God's election, for he identifies no other reason why he revealed the Father's name to some while bypassing others, except that they belonged to the Father, and the Father gave them to Christ. And then notice also in verse 6, Jesus states, they have kept your word. Certainly, keeping God's word is the mark of a true believer. In John 14, 23 through 24, Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. More indicators that we are looking at believers here in these verses. Notice verses seven and eight. Jesus says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Again, Calvin notes here, our Lord expresses what is the chief part in faith, which consists in our believing in Christ in such a manner that faith does not rest satisfied with just beholding the flesh of Christ, but perceives his divine power. And then regarding the words receiving them, here we note that this receiving came as a result of Jesus having efficaciously revealed to them the identity and nature of the Father by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes on to state that they have truly known and have believed. Again, Calvin notes here, let it be observed also that in the former clause, he employs the verb know, and now he employs the verb believe. For thus he shows that nothing which relates to God can be known aright but by faith and that in faith there is such certainty that it is justly called knowledge, unquote. Then some more indicators that we are in fact dealing with believers here can be found in the words, I have kept them in your name and I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Notice here, Judas is the only one mentioned of the 12 that was lost while the others have been guarded and kept in the Father's name and that so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I think it's very evident here that we are dealing with true believers. We are dealing with men, with the exception of Judas, who could be said to have been quote unquote saved at this point. These are men for whom Jesus had effectually revealed the Father to. These are men who are keeping his word. These are men who have received the word and have come to truly know of Jesus' divine origin. And these are men who have believed that the Father sent him. And these are men who are guarded and kept by Jesus. Well, that brings us back then to our question. If that is the case, if we are dealing with true believers here, who we can say at this point are quote unquote saved, why then is Jesus praying and pleading for their salvation? How do we make sense of that? Are these guys saved or are they not? And if we're saying they are, why is Jesus praying for their salvation? How do you make sense of that? Well, the only way that you're going to make sense of this is if you understand the full scope and nature of salvation. If you're one of those who restrict salvation to merely being elected or being justified, then no, this is not going to make any sense. But when you understand all of what salvation entails, only then will this prayer make sense. 
it's crucial for you to grasp that salvation is like a multifaceted diamond. Now, do you understand what I mean when we talk about multifaceted diamond? When we say that a concept or an idea is like a multifaceted diamond, what we mean is that it has various aspects, various dimensions and components that all contribute to its overall richness and complexity, much like the different sides of a diamond. Salvation is comprised of different aspects, different components that collectively make up and define what the Bible means when it talks about our quote-unquote salvation. We see this expressed in our confession. It says, To all those for whom Christ had purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to, to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Every Lord's Day, when we recite that creed at the beginning of our service, we hint to this very idea when we say these words, I believe God requires faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Do we stop there? Is that it? No. Yes, God requires faith and repentance unto life to escape the wrath and curse of God to our sin. I believe we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of the Holy Spirit. And what does that effectual application consist of? You just simply having faith? No, I believe by God's free grace, we are effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. You notice all the steps involved unto salvation? Being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the invisible church of his elect and baptized by water into the visible church, the church universal, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Beloved, as you can hear in all of this, in the confession and the creed that we recite, there is certainly much more to our salvation than what you may typically hear from people. If you were to go on social media and you were to ask Christians in general, what is salvation? What is it comprised of? There are many who would simply cite Acts 16.31 to you and say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And of course, there is no question that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary to salvation. They're right, but they're partially right. As Robert Raymond notes, surely something more must be said. For how can sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sin believe? And why does one sinner believe in Christ and another go to his grave in unbelief? As a matter of fact, this is not all that Paul and other New Testament authors say concerning the matter either. Not at all. To the contrary, they teach that behind the sinner's faith in Christ, as well as behind every spiritual grace he exercises, stands the salvific activity of the triune God. In other words, they teach, one, that salvation is of the Lord, not only at the point of accomplishment, but also at the point of application. And furthermore, they make it clear, too, that the divine application of salvation is not one simple and indivisible act but rather comprises a series of acts and processes.
And then finally, they make it clear that this series of acts and processes follows a very definite order, leading to reform, leading reform theologians to conclude that they may speak of this series as, quote, the order of salvation or the order of salutis. Louis Burkhoff says this in his systematic theology. When we speak of an ordo salutis, that is an order of salvation, we do not forget that the work of applying the grace of God to the individual sinner is a unitary process, but simply stress the fact that various movements can be distinguished in the process that the work of the application of redemption proceeds in a definite and reasonable order and that God does not impart the fullness of his salvation to the sinner in a single act. Did you catch that? You understand what he's saying? Our salvation involves various movements, the way he words it, that can be distinguished in a process. And God does not impart the fullness of his salvation to the sinner in a single act. In other words, there is way more to our salvation than merely speaking of being elected or even being justified. There is far more involved than just us believing. And let me tell you something. You want to be able to spot the people who don't understand this point? It's the people who say things like, well, I said the sinner's prayer 10 years ago. So I'm good. I'm in. I'm safe. That's all that needed to take place. I'm clear. Or you, you want to know who the people are who equate salvation with election alone or justification alone? It's the people who argue against doctrines like progressive sanctification. It's the people who say things like, well, I believe God justified me by declaring me righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. He did that five years ago. And so I'm good. I don't need to concern myself with how I live now or what I do with the law of God or whether or not I need to actively put sin to death in my life and grow in holiness. Everything that needed to take place took place five years ago and I am as holy as I will ever be. It's essentially what I had one friend tell me. I hear it all the time from people claiming to be Christians. However, beloved, this reflects a fundamental failure to grasp the comprehensive and complete nature of what all salvation truly entails. Friends, if our salvation is truncated to a single movement, to borrow the words of Burkhoff, or if it's fully applied in a single act, say 10 years ago, then no, you're simply not going to understand Jesus' prayer here in John 17. You're not going to understand how it is that he is pleading for the salvation of men who, have, who at, at that point have come to know and believe in Christ. Jesus is praying this because the application of salvation involves a series of acts and processes that are applied over time. It's not a single thing like election or justification alone, nor is it applied all at once. Well, having said that, let's quickly explore, based on this prayer, 
What are some of the various elements that constitute our salvation? Now, we're not going to see in full picture what salvation, everything it entails in this prayer. But we'll see a number of things that our salvation involves. Firstly, we certainly see the element of election and predestination. Now, since we've already spent some time dealing with that last week, I'm not going to belabor it here, but just notice the language here in this prayer of how there are those who were chosen by the Father who belonged to him and then are said to be given to the Son to redeem. You see this in verse 2, where Jesus says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see this in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so we see election. Secondly, we see an element of the gift of faith in our salvation. As we have already noted in verse 6, Jesus mentions giving them the words. He clarifies that they have received them, and this receiving signifies the Holy Spirit working and opening their hearts to understand and believe. It is God who actively renews the sinner's will and enables him to respond to the gospel freely. Paul writes this to the Ephesians in chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The third element we see here regarding salvation is our union with Christ. We see this union in verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then in verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The fourth element that we see regarding salvation in this prayer is sanctification. We see this most notably in verse 17 where Christ prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our confession states that they who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are farther sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man will see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man yet imperfect in this life. There abided still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness, in the fear of God. Beloved, I think of all the elements mentioned today, this is probably the most neglected 
And as I've already mentioned, for some people, they just flat out reject it. But understand something here. There is no salvation for you apart from sanctification. James, in his letter, often misunderstood, says this in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now understand something. James here is not contradicting Paul in Romans. James is not asserting that we are justified. That is, in that one single act in where God declares us righteous, he's, he's not declaring that based on our deeds, what we do. Rather, James here is using the terms differently. And he's dealing with those who merely make a profession of faith but do not actually possess true saving faith. James' point here is that a true saving faith will not only embrace and believe what the Bible says, but that faith will yield the fruit of obedience. Take Abraham, for example. He had previously been declared righteous through faith back in Genesis 15. It was not his righteousness, but it imputed righteousness. However, later on, when God commands him to offer Isaac on the altar, Abraham's faith was publicly demonstrated and confirmed and revealed the fullness of his earlier justification with God. In other words, his faith was of a true saving faith because it evident, evidenced itself with the fruit of the Spirit and that of obeying what God had commanded him. Again, what did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you'll just believe me? You'll just accept the words? Again, we're not making light of that. It's necessary, but that's not what he said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Friends, if you don't have a love for the law of God, if you're not concerned about holiness, 
if you're not concerned about going to war with your flesh day in and day out, if you're not concerned about whether or not what you think, speak, and do is glorifying God, as he is defined, as glorification is defined in his word, then we can certainly question and doubt whether you even belong to him in the first place. Fifthly, another element of salvation we see here is perseverance and preservation. Notice Jesus mentions keeping them in your name. This emphasizes God's protective power in preserving the elect even when they face trials and temptations. We see this again, for example, in verses 11 and 12. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them had been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God will preserve his saints from being destroyed by the temptations of the world and of Satan. Again, our confession states this so wonderfully. It says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly preserve therein to the end and be eternally saved. This uh, perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan in the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and to the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. See, the divines are recognizing, even as Christians, true believers, we can fall into these moments where we fall into grievous sins and grieve the Holy Spirit. And they come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, having their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. But beloved, don't miss the point. God will not leave his children in that state. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says in Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If we had judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's not going to leave you in that state forever. And then six and finally, the last element we see here in this prayer regarding our salvation is glorification. We see this, for example, in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
And then in verse 24, Father, I desire, desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Beloved, this is our ultimate hope. Jesus' desire for our joy to be fulfilled and our final glorification points to the ultimate consummation of salvation. This is where the process finally comes to its goal, to its end, where the elect will fully experience God's presence and share in Christ's glory. Again, our confession says that the bodies, this is speaking of what happens to man after he dies. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved for the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledge it none. But when you die, your soul goes to be with God and is made perfect in holiness when it's received in heaven. But even then, your salvation is not fully applied. For we will wait in heaven for what? The full redemption of our bodies. Hence the necessity of the resurrection of the dead. Why? So that man is redeemed fully and wholly, body and soul. Well, there's much more that can be said, but I'm out of time. And there's certainly more to the quote-unquote movements and series of acts and processes that make up what the Bible calls our salvation. But what you, hear, what you see here in John 17, in Jesus' prayer of salvation for the elect, is that we see a glimpse of what all our salvation involves. It's not just being elected. It's not even just being justified. Here we see elements of election, the gift of faith, the effectual calling of God, union with Christ, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. That's salvation. It's not just praying some prayer 10 years ago and forgetting it. John 17, with his profound prayer for the elect, offers more than just theological concepts. It paints a vibrant picture of the sweeping scope of our salvation. We glimpse not one isolated piece, but a magnificent mosaic, each element woven into the whole. It goes beyond election. While God's sovereign choice in our salvation is foundational, it is not the end point. We see the gift of faith and the Holy Spirit breaking through our resistance and drawing us to Christ. Salvation even goes beyond justification. We are not simply declared righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, 
but we are united with Christ. We become part of his very body. And this union is not passive. It is an ongoing process of sanctification where the truth of God's word transforms us into his likeness. And this salvation is a perseverance and hope. While our journey is not without challenges, we see here that Jesus intercedes for our protection, promising to keep us from evil's grasp. And this assurance should fuel our perseverance in reminding us that God's hand is firmly upon us, guiding us towards that ultimate glorification. This prayer here in John 17 gives us a glimpse of the grander picture of our salvation. And it's not just a theological curiosity. It's a call to action. Guiding us towards a life transformed by gratitude, faith, and unwavering hope. As we embrace the fullness of God's saving grace, we become living testimonies to the wonder of his redemptive work. A mosaic of individual lives reflecting the glory of the one who loves us completely and wholly. Let's pray.